Well, in this matter of marriage, sex, and singleness, we have to determine and decide whether or not we're going to allow ourselves to be drawn in to accommodate the culture around us, copying their lifestyles, the changing standards and the changing morals all around us, or whether or not we're going to be people of conviction based on the words, the timeless words of God that are presented to us. Every generation has to come to terms with that, and I would, uh, it's certainly true of this generation. And I certainly also want to uh, sort of offer or issue this urgent um, concern for the younger who are among us, whether college kids or uh, senior hires or whatever, whether or not you're going to base your life upon biblical convictions or whether you're going to let the culture accommodate the culture and just copy everything that you see and allow yourselves to be swept into a lifestyle mess. Because that's really the uh, description of the majority of lives that are out there. The majority of homes and marriages are just a mess. And even within evangelicalism, there is a huge challenge whether or not we're going to stay with the truths of God's word, whether we're going to have convictions on, based upon God's words, or whether or not we're going to accommodate the culture around us. And I see happening uh, in, in evangelical scholarship, the uh, individual straining to, to come up with some sort of grammatical syntax to explain away the plain truth of God's word, looking for loopholes to excuse our self-centeredness and our, sin, our sinfulness rather than trying to find ways to embrace God's offer of abundant living. And nowhere is it more prevalent than in the matter of, of marriage, sexuality, singleness, the culture has much to say about it. There's lots of, of energy as well being invested in these days, shifting blame to others. In marriages, it's my spouse's fault or it's my upbringing or whatever, which is nothing new. It started at the very beginning where Adam blamed the woman that God gave to him and Eve blamed the serpent and we blame Satan. We always, we're always shifting blame for the choices that we make. There's a lot of effort that goes into our hobbies, our careers, our material interests, but I wonder how many of us put energy into our marriages, into our relationships, into making our lives better with our families, because we shouldn't expect our marriages to automatically excel. It doesn't happen that way. And so this morning I want with humility to look at what the Bible says or has to say about marriage, sex, and singleness. And as always, um, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7 because we want to get the truth from God's word. And I also want to say it that the, um, as by way of introduction that I understand fully these are huge matters of the heart. And that in, this, in these matters of marriage and singleness that there are many, many broken hearts. Many people who are among us this morning who are crushed, 
who are disappointed with how things have turned out. And I don't want you to think that I don't know anything about that or understand that or that God's not aware of that because he's, he's so aware of that. And I, I think we all understand that there are many among us who, who had dreams that, that just didn't happen. They didn't turn out the way that you hoped they would. That you started out in a marriage situation or whatever with really high hopes and really great dreams and somewhere along the way they were dashed and your heart has been painfully damaged and hurt. I'm not unaware of that. I'm not aware of every situation, but I know that in a, a group this large that there are many, many of you with, with pained hearts. And so can I please offer to you that I'm going to seek to try and share with you what God's word says and, and present the truth to you, but I recognize that in an audience this large, between 10 and 20% of you uh, are, are with us and have failed marriages. I get that. I'm talking to you today about, about the ideal that God has set out for us in his word and how God can bless us in our lives. And as always with everything about God, today's a brand new day. It's always a brand new day with God. And God is in the heart healing business God is in the business of repairing broken hearts. God is in the, heart, God is in the business of, of repairing broken people, and we're all broken. We all came to God broken. And he's putting all of us back together. And so, as always, when we come to God's word, it's an opportunity for a restart, an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity to say, Lord, from this day forward, I want to do it your way. I want to go your way. Would you strengthen me to do that? And that's what we're going to, to seek to, to present to you today, an opportunity, an opportunity to move in God's way. I, I want to say as we start today that there are some biblical generalities that I've noticed as I've studied for years marriage from the scriptures. And... Uh, these are, are some overriding generalities that we need to have as sort of presuppositions of how we approach marriage, how we approach an understanding of marriage, and, and as it relates to God. And, and the first is this, and I've given a litany of, of texts to corroborate what I'm saying, but if you want to be married, stay married. The Bible, that's the tenor of the Bible. If you want to be married, go ahead, get married, stay married. You didn't have to get married. You chose to get married. And, and the person who said yes to you didn't have to say yes, but they did. And so if you want to be married, stay married. Uh, secondly, marriage is a decision. A great marriage is a decision to obey God. And a decision to obey God will enable you to stay married or should enable you to stay married because it's two people in a marriage. And like everything else in marriage, it takes two to make it great to work at it, to stay together. It takes two. One alone cannot make a marriage great. It takes two. And like everything else in life, you are responsible before God for what you do. You can't be responsible for what the other person does. You will stand before God for what you do. 
and for how you influenced and impacted the people in your lives. So with that in mind, I, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read the text. It's a long one. and has a lot of things in it. We won't be able to touch on everything today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or 7, sorry, verse 1. Now, about the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. And I underline this in my Bible as a foundational bedrock statement of our faith. Keeping God's commands is what counts. That's one of those, that's one of those underlined verses that can become a, a life verse of how you steer the course of your life. Keeping God's commands is what counts. As for me and my house, keeping God's commands is, 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 is what counts. So each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, 
But I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, and those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, this is the Word of God, and we have lots of work to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. We ask that you would help us to mine it with sincere hearts, to... uh, extract everything that you want us to have and to place and apply in our hearts uh, what you teach us. I pray, Father, that we will come at the text this morning with a, uh, a sense of willingness and submission to your heart and to, believe, and to commit to, our, uh, to uh, you that what you teach us, we will seek by your power and strength to apply to our lives, to our marriages. I pray this in God's name, Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to uh, give you a quick review uh, so we catch up to where we are. We learned uh, two weeks ago that uh, marriage is designed to provide companionship. We looked at the early uh, understanding in Genesis of, of a definition of marriage, and I won't go over that with you again today because we've done that already. We also uh, uh, learned uh, two weeks ago that marriage is designed to promote the witness of God. And I just want to reiterate a couple of things here uh, to make sure we understand what we're talking about. Because Ephesians chapter 5 and the whole matter of marriage there is in the context of being filled with the Spirit of God. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 18, it establishes uh, the idea that we are, we are not to be filled with wine, wherein it is excess and leads to debauchery, but rather we are to be filled with the Spirit. That's what God's people are called to be. As Christians, we get the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God moves into our hearts. But as believers, we are called upon to engage in the constant desire in our hearts and willingness in our hearts to be filled with the Spirit. And there's a look to that. And there's a look to that in our marriages. And so we are, we, when we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 and following, 
We really uh, were looking there at what it means to be a married person in Christ's body, in the body of Christ. What do Christian marriages look like? We're not describing, that text is not describing the marriages of the world. It's describing a Christian marriage, a specific, uh, distinct look of those who are believers. And you know that we learned that that in the, the marriage of a believer, we're talking about a super spirit energized marriage rather than marriages that succumb to the basic instincts of our flesh. Far too many marriages in the church, and those are the marriages that really matter to me today, uh, far too many marriages within the church are succumbing to the basic instincts of our flesh rather than expressing ourselves and experiencing what we could have in marriage through the fullness of the Spirit. And so the definition and description that's given to us in Ephesians chapter 5 is precisely that. What would it look like if a man or a woman were filled with the Spirit? What would that marriage look like? And so there's a command there, and you're keeping in mind that we have determined and established this morning in the very center of 1 Corinthians 7 that keeping the Lord's commands is what counts. And so we have two commands that are presented to us in that text, one to women, one to men. And, and to women, it says that we, women are to submit to their husbands as, to the, as, the, as Christ does to the church. And so we learned uh, two weeks ago that, that a Christian woman is called upon by God to say yes to her husband in distinction to her basic instinct to want to say no. To, to the basic instinct within the woman comes from the whole idea of Genesis and the fall and that word desire, that word desire to control or to, 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 um, to, have, yeah, to have control, to, to uh, be in charge, to, to, uh, to not willingly give herself over to the leadership of her husband. That's the basic instinct of the flesh that sin continues to, to uh, drum up in our lives. Christ is calling us to a different way to live, ladies, a different way, uh, wives, in this church. He's calling you to, to uh, by his power and by his strength, to say no to your basic instincts of the flesh, which you can do through his strength, and to say yes to your husband's leadership, to the, the husband's headship of the home. That's basically what we discovered. That's what it looks like to have a fullness of, of the spirit. Women who are members of Christ's body now, these are distinct category of women in this world. Women who belong to Jesus say yes to their husbands and submit respectfully to their husbands. But likewise, uh, the call and the command upon men is to, by the power of Christ's spirit, the fullness of the spirit in a Christian husband, is to be able to say no to, a, to our basic instincts, which is to be selfish and self-centered and to, to rule over our wives harshly and to boss them around. That's our basic instinct, is to, is to be uh, everything that God doesn't want us to be toward our wives. And through the power and presence and fullness of the Spirit, a Christian husband demonstrates an entirely distinct way of treating his wife. And that is to, like Christ treats the church, uh, Christ gave himself for the church, the Christian husband sacrificially lays his life on the line for the best interests of his wife. Now, these two expectations are based on husband and wife being filled with the Spirit. And they're unconditional. 
They're commands of the Lord. They're the abilities that the Lord gives us through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We don't look at each other and say, well, if the woman would do this or if the man would do that. No, we are granted personally the enablement by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep up our end of that responsibility, of that command. That's what we're called to do. Why do we do this? That's, that's what we're to do, and, and, and the how of it is to trust and rely on the Holy Spirit. But why do we do that? We do that because we are members of the body of Christ. We are entirely different type of human being. We do this because we put the, the veracity, the validity, the authenticity, the truth of God on display for people. We actually demonstrate to the world that the Holy Spirit is and that he is powerful and that he can change the basic instincts of humanity to fulfill in a marriage the blessing that God has for us. So we put God on display, the, the reality of God on display by how we treat our spouse. It's a powerful ministry responsibility. That's why the Apostle Paul, after he had talked about all this in marriage, he said, but I, I'm, not, I'm not really talking about marriage. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the mystery of the church. I'm talking about what most people don't know about God, what most people in the world don't see because they don't come to church. But they see in your lives the truth of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit when you put him on display in your marriages. Now, let's talk about sex. The first service was a little more excited about it than this service. Is this an older audience, perhaps? I, I said to them, you know, we should have advertised on the uh, electronic sign out there today. Now let's talk about sex on Sunday. Maybe we wouldn't have so many empty seats here. Marriage is not only designed for companionship, it's not only designed to promote the witness of God, but marriage is also designed to protect people from sin. Um, in order to understand this 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we need, we need to look uh, at the first verse all over again. Because um, we can misunderstand what Paul is really saying here. I can tell you that the New International Version has done a really horrible job of of its translation work here. You may have a better translation than the NIV. Um, in, in this, it says here, now for the matters you wrote about, we have to keep in mind that Paul here is answering a letter of inquiry, actually a letter of statement. And, and so you need to understand that he's not just jumping in and giving his opinion, but rather he's answering a question. And if you understand the question that he's answering, it's a lot easier to understand why he says the things he says. And so here's what it really says. Now, for the matters you wrote about, in other words, this is a statement they made in their letter. The next thing you're going to read is what they wrote in the letter. It was their opinion, all right? Not Paul's. It was their opinion. It is good for a man not to marry. But really, the word there is to touch a woman. It's not marry at all. 
what they really wrote, they wrote to Paul and they said, Paul, because they were really quite proud of their hyper-spiritual lives, and they were saying, Paul, and they were expecting him to commend them and be very excited about what they said. Paul, it is simply better not to touch a woman. And the word touch here is not like go up and put your finger on her shoulder, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. The word touch here is a, is a, is a, a word for um, to actually latch onto or, you know, in the vernacular of our day would be to hook up. He's talking about sexually. That's what he's talking about, okay? That's what they're saying. They're saying, so, Paul, we want you to know that what we think is that celibacy is the real way to go in life. That's, all the, that's what they're saying to him. Paul, And we want you to commend us because here's what we think. Here's what we think would be really religious to not ever have sex with a woman. That's what he's answering. That's the question. That's the statement that he's now addressing, okay? And Paul says, whoa, 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 just wait a second. And then he starts to write. And he writes, because a lot of people think Paul is down on marriage. Paul isn't down on marriage. He's, he's actually answering the question about celibacy. And so he goes on here now to, to write about this. And now about your letter and that, this statement that you said. And he says this. No, it won't work. And I'll tell you why it won't work. I'll tell you why celibacy won't work. He said, because as I look around myself, I don't see celibacy working. All I see is a bunch of sexual immorality. As I look around at the Greek culture that, that I'm writing out of, all I see is sex. Now, this letter, and I think you'll all agree with me, could have been written five minutes ago and it would be true. It would be expressive and descriptive of this kind of culture that we live in. And so he says, now listen, this, the idea of celibacy, he says, you, you need to see that, but since there's so much immorality, marriage, Paul is going to write, is that it's God's alternative to the temptation to sexual immorality that's all around us. Uh, God has made a provision not only for procreation, but he's made a provision to protect us from porneia, sexual immorality, which we talked about two weeks ago. The marriage partner, in other words, Paul writes here, is one's only sexual option. And human beings are sexual creatures, Paul is writing. He talks about a gift from God. This is a gift from God to enable sensual beings to remain faithful to God's command not to be sexually immoral. You and I, in other words, you and I in our marriages are are actually called upon to have a ministry to one another of sin prevention. Uh, John Piper writes it this way, marriage is a dam against sexual sin. He's right about that. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Since there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. And that word have his own wife or a woman have her own husband is the idea of sexually, not just married, but actually sexually have them exclusively one to the other. Now, the statistics, in terms of the issue of, uh, of so much sexual immorality, the statistics are staggering. 
I don't know whether or not you've done any research, research on these matters, but I have. And, and the, uh, the statistics on the issues of pornography, po- prostitution, and affairs, just the issues of pornography itself, 68% of young men are engaged in pornogra- pornography at least once a week. 68%. 18% of young women are engaged in pornography at least once a week. Pornography fits under the rubric of sexual immorality, of which the Bible says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you're saying, well, those numbers are high, and I, I, I get it, that's the world, but I want to share with you some numbers about the church. In George Barna's statistics from 2014, actually, Young Christian men between the ages of 18 to 30 are engaging in pornography. 77% of young men, 18 to 30, are engaging in pornography at least monthly. 36% of Christian young men in the church are engaging daily. And in the age group between 31 and 49 in the church, men... 64% at least monthly. And of the married men in the church, at least 55% monthly. So look around the room. If we divided the room in half, all the men in one half of the room are engaging in this sin that the Bible says one will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's really sobering. That would go in part to explain why marriages are in disaster zone in churches. And today what we really care about is the church. Eight percent of young women Christian women, married women actually, online pornography. 50% watch videos, women watch soft porn videos. Paul writes, because there is so much sexual immorality, sex is owed to you in your marriage. That's the kind of language he's going to use here. I'm going to unpackage it a little bit more for you. Sex is actually owed to you to you in your marriage. That's why he goes on to write, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, verse three, and likewise the wife to her husband. What does this marital duty mean? It means give back, it literally, those words literally mean give back to somebody what is owed to them. Sexual satisfaction is owed to them. In other words, Paul says as loudly as he can in the letter that he's writing back, no celibacy in marriage. Not at all. That's according to God's word. And by the way, uh, normal, young, middle-aged people, the sexual cycle, and by the way, 60's the new 40. (laughs) the sexual cycle of normal human beings is every three to four days. 
That's, that's what we're talking about. Now, there's emotional reasons and health reasons and all of those kinds of things. And, and as husbands and wives, we need to be making sure that we're emotionally attractive and physically attractive and relationally attractive. And all there's all kinds of complicated realities go into this. But I'm talking to you from God's word, just a straight, plain, just tell you the way it is. Because, he says, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, verse 4. It also belongs to her husband. When you got married, you signed over ownership of your body to your spouse. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe nobody told you that. But you did. And by the way, this has implications, I think, about the pro-choice agenda. Thinking that we have exclusive ownership over our body. We actually don't. The Lord owns our body, and he's willing to share our bodies with one other person in life. That's your spouse. And at marriage, this word means you don't have authority any longer over your body. Therefore, sex is not a bribe. It's not a reward. It's an obligation. It's what you've signed up for. You're not to be demanding and you're not to be overly evasive or unavailable. And then he goes on to say this in verse 5. Do not deprive each other. There couldn't be a stronger word used than this word about how God views our marriages and our responsibility with each other physically. This word deprive means defraud. To withhold a rich sexual relationship with your spouse is to actually be guilty of fraud. You're cheating your mate into potentially cheating on God and on you. That's how serious this is. Do not deprive, do not defraud, do not cheat someone out of what belongs to them. That's what cheat means. When you cheat someone, you're cheating somebody out of something that belongs to them. He's saying do not cheat them out of what, they, what belongs to them because you are called upon to eliminate temptations from their lives. Except, he says, by mutual consent and for a time if you want to devote yourselves to prayer. But then he says you better come back to other game because otherwise you're tempting your spouse. And, and he says, this is a concession, not a command. In other words, I'm not even commanding you if you were to take a, a, a prayer fast that you need to refrain from sexual relations. He's saying that, that's just a concession. It's not a command. I'm not commanding you to do this. In other words, in our marriages, there's never a time where God's word commands us to fast from sex. Never a time. It's always a protection. It is a dam against sexual immorality. We need to understand the sexual appetites of our mate, of each other. And we are the only option. We give ourselves away so potential sin goes away. We Satan-proof our marriages. A husband and a wife are each other's protection from sexual immorality. We're to keep ourselves pure with each other's help. 
So does that mean that we can make an excuse by saying, well, see, my mate isn't, isn't really keeping up with the bargain, therefore, God understands that I can have a something going on in the side. No, it's still called sexual immorality. It will always be called sexual immorality. It will always be sin. It does mean that each of us are answerable to God for how we relate to what you've been taught today. If you've never seen this in the scriptures before, today, in the hearing of the scriptures, you're now responsible. Each one before God. He goes on in this text in verse 10 to say, to the married, I give this command. If you do get married, stay married. If you leave, if you have to leave, and you're a woman, and that sometimes happens. Sadly, desperately, there are some situations where women are in danger to stay with a man. They'll be harmed, they'll be hurt, they'll be, they'll be physically abused. There may be a time where a woman has to leave. That's Paul making a concession here. To the married I say, if you have to leave, you must remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. If you are a man, he says here, you must not divorce your wife. In uh, Malachi uh, 2, 16, um, the text there, of course, talks in the Old Testament, uh, the text there talks about how God hates divorce. And he says this, that um, he he says, stay faithful to the wife of your covenant, the, 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 the wife of your youth, of your marriage covenant. And then he says, um, because you haven't been and your, your garments are stained with blood. The idea here is, men, you took on a responsibility when you took on a, a wife to love her and care for her and watch out for her and to never kick her out of your life, to never push her away from you, to always look after her because if you don't, It's so painful, so harmful, so hurtful. It's as if you put on a garment stained with blood. Because that's how I see you. That's how the God of heaven sees a man who would throw his wife out of his life, the person that he's supposed to love sacrificially and watch over and care for. So women, if you have to leave, then remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. Stay married, but if you have to leave, remain single or or, or be reconciled to your husband. Men, don't you ever leave your wife or kick her out. That's what he says. Or just go ahead and get some clothes and soak them in blood and put them on and stand in my presence because that's what you've done. To those who are married to an unbeliever, verse 12, he tells them to stay married as well. Verse 13 through 14, if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Lots of people were coming to know Christ 
They were hearing the gospel and they were coming to faith in Christ. But their spouse wasn't always coming to faith in Christ. And so they were writing. They're, obviously, he's still answering questions. It wasn't the only question in the front. Of it. He's answering questions. So what do we do now? Should we, would it be best to divorce our, our unbelieving spouse? He's no, no, don't do that. And they must have said to him, yes, but if, if we have sexual relationships, sexual relations with our unbelieving spouse, are we not connecting Christ to something impure? And Paul says, no, no, there's a special dispensation that God makes in this particular situation. When you're in a situation whereby you're the believer and your spouse is not because you've been called into salvation. He says, your mate is sanctified, which is the word set apart. Uh, Otherwise, he says, the product of your marriage would be uh, unholy, but your children are holy. So what is he saying? That they're they're automatically, um, uh, by default, Christians? That's not what he's saying because he says, he says in the same sentence, they're unbelievers. No, they're in, a, they're in a special category of set apart by God to have this great value of having the gospel in the home. Don't kick them out. Don't throw them away. You are a minister to them in this situation. Your children are now in this special protective custody of God because of you. Your mate is as well because of you, and they have this great opportunity of being witness to, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if they persist in having no interest in it, and, and are hostile toward it, and hate it, and want to leave, want to divorce you, then let them go. Because we're called to peace, he says. The brother or the sister is not bound in this case. Go ahead, let them go. And he says, because how do you know, sister, whether or not your husband would come to faith? Or how do you know, brother, whether or not your, your, uh, sister, your, your wife would come to faith? If they leave, they leave. There's nothing you can do about it. But don't you force them out. That's what this teaches. And then he says, marriage is not for everybody. The, the rest, basically, of, of this whole text, he talks about marriage is not for everybody. When they said it's, it's better to be celibate, he said, no, not in marriage it isn't. But you'll notice in verse 7, he says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another that Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Paul is making the point that I'm a single. I'm talking to you about this as a single. But I suggest to you that he's probably a widower. I think he's single again. The reason I say that is twofold. One, because he was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. It was just absolutely unheard of for a rabbi or a Pharisee not to be married. The only rabbi that was ever unmarried in history, I think, is Jesus. But it was certainly, it was just expected. The Jews and marriage is humongous. If you understand the Jewish culture, Jews and marriage is the big deal. For Greeks, it was promiscuity. So Paul was bringing this all together and and teaching in two contexts contexts of the two cultures. And and the reason I think, the second reason is when he says now to the unmarried, verse 8, and the widows... The unmarried that he's referencing here is, I think, widowers. And the reason I say that is because the Greek, Greek has no word for widowers. And so um, it only, for men who do not have a wife, 
For men who've lost their wife, there's no Greek word to precisely talk about that. And so he used the only word that, he, that was available, which is unmarried. But there was a word for widows. And I, I'm pretty convinced in the context that he's, he's saying now to the widowers and to the widows, I say, because I'm a widower. But if you can't control yourself, if you're not able to control yourself, you should go and get married. Because it's better to marry than to burn. And the with passion, by the way, is added. It's not in the original. It's a... It's an, it's, a, it's an implied or an, impl- yeah, an implication, but it's not necessarily the right uh, interpretation. Paul could very readily be saying, if you can't control yourself and you're going to practice sexual immorality, you're going to burn in hell, not just burn with passion. And so Paul now talks about singleness. And he's, he talks about it, it's, uh, it's, if you're single and gift, and by the way, he talks about it as a gift the singleness is a gift. Um, there, are, there are more gifts than we, than we generally talk about. In the, we, we come up with a few sections of the Bible. We talk about these are the gifts of the Spirit. There are more gifts than those sections. This is a gift. The gift, the gift of sing, singleness is a gift. I learned very early that I didn't have that gift. I had a girlfriend by kindergarten. <laughs> I, I can say that in the second service. I didn't say that in the first because Lynn was here. But I, I, can say that in the, I can say that in this service and hope she doesn't listen to the sermon. But I never didn't have a girlfriend from kindergarten. So I, I learned early that singleness was not going to work for me. But it is a gift for some. This is what the text says. And, and he makes the point that, that if, if that is your gift, if, if he's, he's, he's applauding it, he's, he's excited about it. And the reason he's excited about it is because you have all kinds of extra energy and latitude to serve the Lord. If you're married, you have to, you have to tie up time with your, with your family and all those responsibilities. Most of us have probably, you probably had a weekend where like the wife and the kids went away. You ever had one of those weekends? It's like... Some of you are saying, no, I'm, I'm waiting for that. Just staring at me like, I, I'm waiting for that to happen. That sounds pretty. It's like, you can't believe the time you have on your hands. This is like you get up whenever you want to. You eat whenever you want to. You eat whatever you want to. You, uh, you, you can stay in your pajamas all day. You can do whatever. And you're like, wow, no kids bugging me anymore. They're all gone. No, no, wife's not bothering me about anything. Doesn't mind that I, I went to five guys for every meal that day. It's like you can do anything you want and you can't believe all the time that you have on your hands. That's what singleness is like, I guess. <laughs> and so Paul says here, you know, hey, singleness, if, if you can handle it without sinning, like go for it. Because you can be very, very valuable to the kingdom of God. But most people, he says, can't do that. And they have to take care of their families and, and serve the Lord as well. As the kids are moving out of the house, I'm realizing there's more and more time. Although, they always keep presenting me with new challenges and new time issues, but that's another story for another day. Here's the options and the obligations. If you are going to be married, you give over ownership, you stay married, you serve God by serving your family. If you're going to be single, you stay pure, you leverage your time and energy to serve God. But here's the here's important reality. You cannot have the benefits of singleness and the benefits of marriage at the same time. Each must choose to act upon one's gift. Is it marriage or singleness? 
Each has its benefits and blessings for the kingdom. In one case, you multiply people. In the other, you multiply yourself. But one thing that is abundantly clear in this text, you can't be engaged in sexual immorality whether you're single or whether you're married. Regardless of what the standards and morals are of the culture around us, you can't accommodate that culture. Finally, as a summary, marriage is designed to produce godly offspring. What are we saying here in Malachi chapter 2, 13 to 16? Uh, the word of God says this, and why one, why marriage, why one flesh? Because he is seeking God, is seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Ladies, as I told you last week, Christian ladies, you teach the next generation how to respect authority. And men... You teach the next generation what servant godly leadership that deserves respect looks like. Both of those things are your response, our responsibilities. So why do we retool our marriages? Why respond to God, total, God's total recall on the brand and the bad definition that's out there? Because if we alienate ourselves from each other, we are alienating ourselves from God. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, God doesn't look upon our offerings if we, are, if we are not treating our spouse correctly and he won't hear our prayers. So what definition of marriage are you displaying in the world around you? If you fail to enrich your marriage, you will be attending divorce recovery workshops. A great marriage happens when two people decide to obey God. And godly people choose obedience no matter what. I'm praying for a marriage revival in our midst. We have some real work to do in this area, in our church. We have some very toxic relationships. Some that we know of, some that we don't know of. No doubt more that we don't know of than that we do know of. Why are we not reaching more? Why is God not blessing more? Because we are so toxic toward each other. And God's not even hearing our prayers or even looking at our offerings. He won't multiply those or bless those. So it is up to us, men, to lead women, to choose God's way to relate to each other, to be generous in our relationships to be intimate, generous in our intimacy to each other, to put away all our impurity, turn our hearts fully toward each other and to God. Because when marriage is off, we're, we're all off. And there's a lot of wasted emotional energy. So I hope that you will choose God's way and not accommodate the culture and have a glorious and blessed marriage all that God has for us and all that it can be. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for offering us the truth. And in that truth for setting, to set us free and to, to, to bring us into an enriched, blessed reality. Oh God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I've shared with you things that are impossible. Totally, utterly, absolutely impossible without the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has commanded us to do these things 
And in his command of this, he enables us through the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit. That women who are married and filled with the Holy Spirit can turn from their basic instincts of the flesh to submit to the leadership and headship of their husbands. That men, Christian men, filled with the Spirit, can turn from their basic instincts of selfishness, self-centeredness, and can turn to sacrificially give of their lives to their wives. That each of us can physically protect our spouse from sexual immorality by the power of God's Spirit working in our lives. And in doing that, the onlookers, and especially our children, will see the reality and truth of a living, powerful God who changes basic instincts through repentance into spirit-filled living for his glory. How many want that? You want that? I want that. Some of you want it. That's good. I'll pray that all of us will want it someday. Our Father and our God, we can't do this. And the sooner we admit that, the better. But you can empower us to live a life that we can have, to live it abundantly, to have marriages that you always wanted us to have and to enjoy every enrichment that is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, this is what we need. This is what we desire. This is our heart's cry to you. Would you change Calvary Baptist Church families? I'm praying, Lord, for a marriage revival in our midst, that the gospel might go forward with power. In Jesus' name, amen.